Right, uh, good afternoon everybody. Welcome to the LSE and the LSE Literary Festival. Um, my name is Simon Glendinning and I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy which is based here in the European Institute at the LSE and uh, with my more formal academic hat I'm the reader in European philosophy in the European Institute and um, that title has some relation to our guest this afternoon um, because if I was the reader in European philosophy in the European Institute um, our guest was Professor of European Thought at the European Institute for some time and I can tell you that when I grow up I want to be John Gray <laughs> Don't bother <laughs> and even, even a few minutes ago I had an experience which I won't tell you about but <laughs> which relates to an experience I will tell you about which is that John Gray keeps being ahead of me in 2008 I published something rather long a scholarly study of phenomenology that almost no one will ever read and uh, in it it had a critique of something called, that I called humanism the humanism of phenomenology the idea that there was this uh, conception of the human being as something special, a radical break between the human and every other living thing. And I came to see this as a kind of dogmatic inheritance of a Greek and Christian heritage of thought that needed to be called into question. Well, that was 2008, but in 2002, in Straw Dogs, John Gray had already made the point very clearly very persuasively and to a very wide audience that the humanist worldview uh, that came grounded in the Platonic Christian tradition, the view that human beings have a special position at the center of a cosmological, <coughs> biological and historical significance, structure of significance, that this view was profoundly flawed, both conceptually and empirically. Well, of course I was very pleased to find I was in such good company. But it didn't stop there. In 2010, I completed a new article, got it accepted in an academic journal, one more thing that was difficult to read and which was unlikely to be read. And my theme was the revival of religion and the fate of secularism in Europe today. And one of my basic claims was that the modern secularist idea that we're moving towards a future in which we will have been liberated from the yoke of religion, I argued that that's a fundamentally Christian providential idea of history that has its roots in Christian theodicy and the idea of history with a redemptive end. 2010. Well, in 2007, John Gray published Black Mass which explained all this and much more and did so more clearly, persuasively and to a wider readership than anything I could hope for. Well, I should have learned my lesson. But last month, <laughs> I submitted a new essay on the roots of racism in the naturalization of classic European humanism in the Enlightenment. And I got good feedback and the piece was accepted but the referee added this comment. 
You might wish to note John Gray's claim <laughs> that the most peculiar achievement of the Enlightenment was, quote, to give genocide the blessing of science and civilization. Mass murder could be justified by faux Darwinian ideas of survival of the fittest and the destruction of entire peoples could be welcomed as a part of the advance of the species. Well, if you want to know what I'll be writing about... <laughs> In five years' time, we've just got to cut out the middleman of my own slow and obscure reading and go straight to the person who will have got there both brilliantly and first. So I just want to ask you, John, have you or are you already intending to write <laughs> about Freud's comparative history of the three blows to human narcissism with special reference to Wittgenstein and Derrida's reception of that? Not exactly. <laughs> my, Freud is central to my next book, though. <laughs> okay, well, if you could just hold off this time. Yeah. Just give me, give me three years and I'll be done. Yeah. Well, in this theatre yesterday... Uh, we had Timothy Garton Ash speak here, and uh, he said that in Britain we don't talk about public intellectuals. He cited, citing Byron, he said that it was like longueur, which is a long and boring passage in a, a literary work. Um, he, uh, Byron had said, we, we don't have the word, but we certainly have the thing. Um, Garton, Timothy Garton Ash thought that public intellectuals is not a good word for the thing that we do have. Well, uh, he's, he's wrong. We, we do have a good word for it. It's John Gray. Thank you very so, much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Simon, for that very witty and overly generous introduction. And thank you all for coming to uh, hear what I have to say and in fact um, Simon's introduction does uh, directly lead into one of the things I wanted to say about this new book uh, it's a book of stories in part, two main stories uh, one set in Edwardian and Victorian England, another in early Bolshevik Russia and uh, it initially came about uh, in ways that can only be told uh, as a story. And I'll um, try to say what those stories were in a moment. But it does uh, deal with um, one of the central ideas that Simon mentioned in his, uh, in his introduction, which is really about whether uh, what is the relationship between science and, in particular, uh, Darwinian uh, theory and what can generally be called humanism. And by humanism here is not only meant, or even primarily meant, the secular humanism that uh, um, many people profess today, and which has grown up alongside the, um, uh, or as part of the Enlightenment, but any theory in which, or any view of the world in which humans either are central, of some kind of central importance or value in the cosmos, or could become of central importance and value in the, con in the cosmos. And one of the things I discovered when reading, as I did done for many years, about the impact of Darwinism in uh, late Victorian Britain, 
is that certainly among the people I, uh, whose stories I tell in this book, the impact was not chiefly on uh, uh, the way it's now represented as being a perception that Darwin had developed an alternative theory of creation, an alternative theory of the emergence of life and of the human species. That was not the principal way it was perceived, certainly not by the people that I discuss in the book. It's partly because no one, not very few people, in fact, I would think practically nobody until the 18th or 19th centuries ever imagined that the Genesis story was a, an explanatory theory. Uh, the, uh, Augustine says, go back to Augustine, he says, uh, it was a way of accessing things that could not be put in literal terms and therefore should not be taken literally. And if you go back to, before Augustine to the Jewish scholars um, who uh, wrote on um, uh, these matters, they said that the, the same thing about Genesis. It was what we would call a myth or poetry, a way of accessing truths that were not uh, literally uh, capable of being literally rendered and certainly not in the forms of theory. So I don't think that was ever the key to it. Among the, but it's certainly not in the Victorian, late Victorian times, among the people who, after the publication of Origin of Species um, in 1859, reacted to it over the subsequent decades, and certainly Sidgwick, uh, an ex-Christian Henry Sidgwick, the Cambridge philosopher, one of the, the leading public intellectuals, if that strange term could be applied at that time, which I think it could be useful, along with Mill, probably the leading Victorian public intellectual, and in many ways I think a more intellectually uh, interesting and adventurous thinker, um, uh, and many others, the, the significance of Darwinism was that if Darwin was right, then humans were as other animals in that when they died, they died forever. That's to say, when each individual human died, it returned to dust and there was nothing. That was the end, the final end. And also, humans as a species would had come about by chance. There was no, as it were, although this was rapidly retreated from, even in some of Darwin's writings, actually, there was no progressive movement in the cosmos which was always bound to culminate in humans. Humans had arisen by chance and would be extinguished at some point in the future by chance. In other words, there would be the death of the species. And so uh, for many of the, um, uh, of the people who received Darwin's um, theory and thought about it, that was the challenge it posed. It was, as it were, the final transience of individual humans and of the species as a whole, and what that meant for ethics and science and for the um, um, the position of humankind in the world. Now, the interesting thing, and this is quite important, is that practically all of the forms of Darwinism that were influential, whether politically or intellectually, involved a retreat from this position. That's, and this is even, you even find it in, um, in Darwin himself. In the autobiography, Darwin says of natural selection, it goes nowhere, it's like the wind which blows as it pleases. It's entirely purposeless. But in the celebrated and in one of his diaries, he says, never use the words higher or lower. It's good I think it's good advice, by the way, when one is talking about evolution. But in the celebrated last page of The Origins of, Origins of Species, he says, when describing the theory, he says, thus we see this, that from war, kind of conflict between organisms, from worms and microscopic uh, uh, um, uh, organisms, gradually forms of life emerge. Then he says, higher and higher forms of life. So he hasn't kept his own 
his own advice, hire and fire forms of like culminating clearly for the time being in who else but us, though he doesn't say that. But then he comes with this um, kind of Victorian conclusion. He says, and thus the whole pro process is one of progress to perfection, and which is the exact opposite of what he'd said in the autobiography in which it was just entirely random. It was just the wind blowing anywhere it wanted to. So even Darwin didn't, as it were, face up all the time to the full uh, implications of his theory for the place of humankind in the world, and practically none, with a significant exception, which I'll uh, mention in a moment, practically none of his disciples did. And where Darwinism was taken up, uh, uh, it was often fused with a type of Lamarckianism, Lamarck's theory, in which, as it were, there is or can be purpose in the pro process, even Darwin's own theorizing, some people have interpreted that in a slightly Lamarckian way, at least in phases of it. But essentially what was done in nearly all of uh, the reception of it is that evolution was assimilated to or equated with or identified with progress. That's to say with improvement or with movement at least towards some sort of goal. Whereas the key feature of the theory, the logic of the theory of lateral selection is that there is no goal. At each stage it's a mix of chance and necessity and random uh, natural selection of random genetic mutations. There's no goal to it. Complex species such as ourselves and others emerge and then things change and we're extinguished and um, that's that. Um, so that was the, as it were in a sense, that was Darwinism. That, well, that posed the issue of does the meaning uh, we find in our lives, has it so to speak got any tenure in the world? Does it have any, um, uh, is, it, is it based in something more fundamental than just certain features of ourselves as adventitious animals? And that's something that really uh, affected um, large numbers of middle class people as well as leading uh, thinkers and philosophers and scientists as well, including some uh, leading figures in the uh, Royal Society in the late Victorian and Edwardian uh, uh, periods and was directly implicated in their lives. And one of the things I think which is, uh, which I feel about the book I wrote is that when I describe the stories of these people in terms of certain general ideas, I'm nearly always referring to the ideas that they themselves referred to in the course of their lives. That's to say, I'm not adding an interpretive philosophical gloss on these people. They've, they thought in these terms. So uh, Henry Sidgwick, I mentioned earlier, devoted 30, 20, several decades of his life to the study of the paranormal, to psychical research. You won't find that mentioned, except at most in a footnote in, most, in, in practically any of the uh, philosophical accounts of Sidgwick's ethics. But for Sidgwick, it was completely central he spent decades of his life doing this. Um, he slightly made interpretation of his work more difficult than it need otherwise have been because he took out the last page he, of the first edition of his great book, Methods of Ethics, which is still studied in, by moral theories. He took out the last page and replaced it because in the last page of the first edition, he says, I've studied all these different systems of ethics, and I think he was a deeper moral thinker than, than Mill which is more concerned with the foundations of moral life. Um, and none of them really I've been able to render coherent because what I come up with is a variety of self-evident principles like the principle of prudence or self-interest on the one hand and the principle of benevolence or partiality on the other hand. And the trouble is they're all self-evident, but they collide. But they're incompatible. So we might end up, he thinks, he ends up with a, 
but incoherence at the very heart of ethics. And he says in that conclusion, um, um, it can only be reconciled really if we make a postulate. I think he's wrong about this, but there's neither here nor there. What he calls the postulate of immortality, capital P, capital I. The Victorians loved capital letters. And without capital P, capital I, he said there'd be capital C, chaos, and even capital A, anarchy. Uh, there would, so there would, it was very, very important. Now, he took that out of subsequent editions. In subsequent editions, he said, well, this is all terribly difficult. We've come to some very difficult questions. I'm not sure I've solved them. Yours, Henry Sidgwick, the end. Um, but it was absolutely central. For him, the, the significance of Darwin and of Darwinism was that the final disappearance, the final of each individual and of, and of the species as a whole, created a new background, let's put it, a new framework for, for ethics. Now, another important point about Sidgwick and all these people is that none of them sought or, in, or, or, or did, in fact, themselves go back to religion. They'd either never been religious or their religious faith had retreated. In Sidgwick's case, he'd been a Christian. Uh, in those days, to be a fellow of an Oxford or Cambridge College, you had to sign up to the Articles of the Anglican Church. I can't remember how many there were, 29, 19, something like that. But Sidgwick, going through them, said, I can't sign up to these three, so I'm resigning. Um, he was rather u unusual, if not unique in that respect. No one else signed up and believed them either, but uh, <laughs> um, they chose over their port to disregard that, uh, that fact. He resigned, reappointed later. He ceased to be a Christian. Uh, he said, but I never ceased hoping to, become a, to, to, to be a theist. But the key point for Sidgwick was um, the only evidence, the only reasons, the only uh, uh, kind of input to his thinking that he accepted in terms of whether there was something like the survival of human personality of bodily death, whether immortality made any sense, was scientific. That's to say, he accepted that the only really convincing and authoritative uh, reasons that could inform his thinking about this, the decisive ones, had to come from science because only in science could you have genuine knowledge. So he, at no point, he wanted to avoid, at least as far as he could, any appeal to the authority of the church or to faith or to mere hope, although he did sometimes appeal um, uh, to hope. So science was the key. And one of the things I want to, I want to sort of emphasize here is it's a very, very interesting point, is that these Victorian and Edwardian seekers were not people who rejected science. They were not romantics with the exception of Arthur Balfour, Prime Minister, but also President of the Society for Psychological Research. They weren't radical skeptics. Balfour pretty well was. He was skeptical about science as well as many other things. But most of them weren't. They were people who thought that science was the only way to gain knowledge of the world. But they interpreted science as a, a bundle of methods, not as a fixed worldview. An interesting point. In other words, there was nothing for them. What they actually wanted was, to, was for science to be able to show that the kind of vision which um, Darwin had presented of the world was actually incomplete or partial. What they wanted, in fact, was for science to be used to undermine scientific materialism, that science would show that mechanical or mechanistic materialism of the sort that was growing strong in those uh, years um, uh, was, in fact, unscientific. And to some extent, I think it can be said that they stuck to scientific rigor in their methods, not by any means all. We'll come to that in a moment. But when they studied the physical manifestations of mediumship, they concluded that I think all of the ones they studied were either in, uh, implausible or fraudulent. So they really sort of stuck to that. Uh, they weren't easily taken in in that respect. 
Um, now, why was it that they were so anxious to, um, to show that there was human survival of bodily death? Because, uh, of course, survival could come in many forms. And even if there was survival of bodily death, it might be that we survived in a world as obscure and only partly intelligible as the one we're in now. In fact, by the way, there was a, a seeming and apparent posthumous communication from Sidgwick to this very effect. <laughs> Towards the end of his life, Sidgwick wrote to a friend that he'd spent decades look, looking for um, evidence of, of, of survival. He said, I found absolutely nothing. I found, in most respects, nearly all respects, he's an extremely honest uh, thinker and, and person. He said, I found absolutely nothing. So he died without the belief, without the sense of having found what he believed was absolutely necessary. But he did sort of give the, he said, well, but if I do, against my expectations, survive, I'll be back in touch. <laughs> and uh, uh, some envelopes he left with messages were opened after his death, and the messages he said he would transmit never appeared, as far as I know. But others did, and some years after he died, uh, text began to appear through automatic writing in which the, the, the medium uh, appears to experience the hand being moved by a, another personality who then communicates, in this case, the deceased Sidgwick, in which Sidgwick, um, in quotes, the Sidgwick persona says, well, I spent my life seeking. I was a great seeker. I couldn't find anything. Well, now I know that, that there is survival body because here I am, as it were. He said, but, he said, I continue seeking. I remain baffled. <laughs> In other words, I sort of imagined him there, sort of finding himself in an enormous Cambridge combination room, kind of semi-dusty, uh, and going over to the next person. How long have you been here? 800 years, really. Hmm. Uh, what are we doing here? No one knows. Uh, um, we asked so-and-so. He'd been here for 10,000 years. He had no idea either. Uh, but he says, I've, he says I've, um, I've, I've got this. The Pacific persona in the text says, I've got this. Um, I'm in this city, I've got the effort, but I'm as black perplexed as ever. Then he comes up with an almost Wittgensteinian sort of aphorism, except that this is long before Wittgenstein ever came to England. Um, uh, or at any rate, at least a decade. It was certainly not a, an echo because he said, uh, and I, he said, what I've discovered is this. He says, the riddle of death is no more solved by dying mm -hmm. than the riddle of life by being born. Take my case. That's exactly what he says. I think it's a wonderful uh, account and it has this sort of querulous, sincere, intransigent tone of Sidgwick himself uh, during his life. Uh, that he uh, and I think it's it's remarkable how you explain it. As, as I would tend to think, it's a kind of evidence of the powers of impersonation of the human mind, because most of the automatists either knew Sidgwick themselves or knew other people, such as their husbands or partners, who who knew Sidgwick. So they somehow kind of pieced together a, in the unconscious, in their subliminal minds a kind of picture of Sidgwick. Where does this lead to? Well, uh, the point I'm making by way of these digressions is that for, in the late 19th century, the reception of Darwinism was such that um, what people sought for was actually an exit from the world as revealed by science. But they sought an exit not through faith, but through science itself. So science was used against science. They couldn't endure the idea of humans as being an ephemeral, chance-produced um, um, product of an impersonal, meaningless, amoral process. Each of the humans dying and disappearing and 
then the human species dying and disappeared. Couldn't, couldn't endure that. But they didn't, on the whole, go back. To, didn't almost any of them, in fact, go back to, to religion. They turned to science for a way out. Now, why did they feel this so intensely? It was partly the lives they led at that time. You don't have to read much about late Victorian England to realise that random death was still very common. Women very frequently uh, lost children in infancy. One of the central figures of this uh, story is a, a woman who uh, practiced as an automatist under a, a pseudonym. She was, in fact, a leading suffragette, uh, knew Lloyd George, uh, and uh, was the British High Representative to the League of Nations. But she had lost a child uh, when very young, and she'd turned to automatic writing and to, in order to try and communicate with the child or whoever was looking after the child in the afterworld. And although this sounds absurd to us, I think it's a very kind of poignant thing as well. And also, one can only have sympathy with people in this situation. Religion had lost whatever power it had to console for the experience of irreparable loss. Other examples were, were people who'd had uh, deep love attachments, some of them uh, covert or secret. Uh, for example, F. W. H. Myers had fallen in love with a married woman. Uh, it was never consummated. She committed suicide. Um, he spent uh, over 20 years then uh, trying to uh, contact her departed, her in the other, in the other world. Uh, he had had, an, uh, I think, an unbearable experience of loss. Other people lost uh, um, uh, fiancés or family members through disease or, uh, or accident. Random death was more common then than it is now in, in, in an affluent uh, society such as, such as Britain. Uh, so they had the, 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 the problem of coping with final loss, final loss. Uh, uh, and I think the idea of showing, uh, demonstrating through science, that actually when humans died, the mind didn't die as well, that in fact there was a continuity between life in this world and life in another world, had a deep attraction to many people as a way of coping with this experience of unbearable loss. But it also had another feature which was more dis even more distinctively um, Victorian is in fact almost comical in some way this way, which is that one of the things these psychological researchers certainly believed was that progress continued on the other side. In the world that we know, progress may falter, there may be science may falter, there may be horrible movements may emerge, there may be periods of chaos. And certainly the First World War uh, uh, was such a period. Um, uh, everything broke down. Whole civilizations collapsed or disappeared. Uh, mass killings and uh, murder and uh, death through uh, starvation and disease and so forth on a large scale. So it looked as if progress was, as it were, faltering. But these Victorians and then Edwardians in that First World War and post-First World War period, many of them had the strong belief that whatever happened on this side, knowledge was growing on the other side and things were improving on, uh, uh, on, on the other side. And some of them, quite a lot of them actually, interestingly, some were atheists, many considered themselves Darwinians. Quite a few of them uh, said that, uh, claimed that evolution continued on the other side. Now if you think about it for a while, it doesn't really add up all that well. Uh, for one thing, they never mentioned propagation or procreation on the other side or reproduction. It's difficult to imagine natural selection without generations, without people having offspring. It's never mentioned. Um, uh, it's not clear whether there's time on the other side 
Well, there's not aging because what you were in all the accounts of the world in the future, you have a body, but it always seems to be somewhat superior to the one you've left behind. You don't find yourself with spots or having gone bald in, in the transition to, uh, uh, to the afterlife. You have a body better than the one you'd have, but once you've got it, it doesn't change. And of course, there's also the issue of the point, which is that um, a Darwinian question, very relevant to Darwin, because it was posed to him by the co-discoverer of natural selection, Alfred Russell Wallace, by the man he himself always publicly and privately described as the co-discoverer of natural selection. There's also the question that if we humans somehow or some part of us survive bodily death, what about the other animals, including the ones close to us? After all, it is wonderful books here of emotions in animals and elsewhere, Darwin had seen his main goal as breaking down the wall between human minds and other animal minds. So if our mind survives uh, bodily death somehow, our minds, what about other minds? What about the minds of all those animals that are now extinct? Will the afterworld, problems of population can get quite intense, I think, at this point. Will the other contain all these extinct species as well as, as, well as the ones that have actually existed? Now, why this is relevant is that Alfred Russell Wallace, the co-discoverer, a remarkable man, admirable man in many ways, very unlike Darwin, partly in that he was a fearless iconoclast. Darwin was an iconoclast, I think, fort de mieux. Uh, he, uh, he didn't want to be. He was, convent he was extremely cautious. But um, Russell Wallace, who'd um, traveled in many parts of the world and come up with uh, a theory of natural selection independently of Darwin, some say even before Darwin, did have an iconoclastic turn of mind, and that's, that's why he's been subsequently been forgotten. And that having come up with this, he then converted to spiritualism. And he and Darwin had a painful correspondence in which Darwin wrote to him, you're not going to kill the child we both fathered, are you? To which Russell was right, yes, I am. So he came to the view that although the appearance of the human animal could be explained by natural selection, the emergence of the human mind couldn't. But he didn't resolve this issue of if the human mind survives, why not other animal minds? He never really uh, uh, resolved um, uh, that, that issue either. Uh, so in the mid-Victorian, in the late Victorian and Edwardian periods, I think the, the rise of psychological research are deep, closely connected with secularization. Very important point. Religion was retreating in its power to console and its hold on the feelings. Science was becoming more and more authoritative and more and more powerful. So that when faced with this, as it were, rather bleak and desolate prospect that Darwin's theory seemed to have uh, opened up, what um, uh, the, 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 uh, the response in Britain, in England, was psychical, was, was to try and show through scientific means that human personalities did not, in fact, disappear uh, at death. Now, it was different in Russia for a number of reasons, which is the second sort of part of the book really is concerned about the early Bolshevik period and what preceded it, which is that, as far as I know, none of the, uh, uh, quite a few of the Bolsheviks, actually, surprisingly, including Lunacharsky, the first Commissar of Enlightenment, wonderful title. He was, in fact, a censor of uh, the arts and controlled education, had the second largest budget in the Soviet state, apart from the army and the security services, uh, had been a disciple of Madame Lovatsky, Theosophist, and uh, uh, but none of them, as far as I know, were involved centrally in uh, spiritualism or psych research in the way that the English psych researchers were. But in a different form, they did believe that science could be used to uh, defeat death or to cheat death. Some of them did. The God Bill is a section of the Bolshevik intelligence. It didn't include Lenin. He hated it, or Stalin later. 
uh, but a section of the Gorky, Lunacharsky, Krasin, and some others, thought that up to the point at which they were talking, this is where Wells, another feature, H.G. Wells, comes into the picture, um, they thought that science um, uh, showed that humans were animals like others. So up to that point, when humans had died, they had died forever. There was no other world. There was only this world. So death had been hitherto final. But by using science, humans could actually uh, enable themselves to live longer or even to resurrect themselves. Some could be resurrected from, um, from death by the use of new technologies. And in the case of some of the uh, gold builders, including Gorky in some moods, the ultimate result of the use of science would be that humans could shed the body altogether and become simply thought energy or, um, uh, uh, or light, as he, as he put it. And he described this once in a, he records in his uh, journals to the poet Bloch, to which the Bloch replied, and I must say it's my sentiment, what a miserable, horrible, boring vision. Uh, he said, thank God it will never come about. But Gorky wanted to imagine that humans could shed their bodies, and if they shed their bodies, they would be immortal. They wouldn't be vulnerable to death, they wouldn't age, they wouldn't, they wouldn't die. And uh, that actually, that fantasy, that dream, if you like, um, had a role in, um, um, in the early Bolshevik uh, period, including uh, people like Krasin, the trade minister uh, of the Soviet Union, who was himself a, a technological resurrectionist and, and believed this and gave speeches about it even before Lenin died, and who was part of the decision-making procedure whereby the funeral commission that would have been set up to talk about to deal with Lenin's remains turned into the Immortalization Commission. But back to Wells, because Wells is significant here. When Wells had been a young man, he listened to T.H. Huxley lecturing in London, and Huxley was the kind of vehicle for the starkest form of Darwinism. He was called at the time Darwin's bulldog. And the interesting thing about Huxley is Huxley did not commit the common mistake of assimilating uh, evolution with progress. His evolution is purposeless, it's directionless, it's not going anywhere, it never has in the past. Uh, it's, it's essentially a mechanical, semi-random, semi semi-necessary process. Necessary only in this it doesn't produce higher and higher forms. It isn't going anywhere. But, Huxley said, humans can inject meaning and purpose into this purposeless and meaningless process. A view that many secular humanists have since adopted. We may have come about by chance, but we, whoever we are, are obviously not the whole species, can inject meaning into this and ethics and uh, into this purposeless process. And Wells, I think, always accepted that message. Having imbibed it in his youth, it comes out in all kinds of different forms in his writings. Um, and it comes out in aspects of his work as a publicist and a propagandist for his views, in which he's constantly arguing from the early 1900s onwards in his nonfiction works that what needs to be done is for a scientific elite, a scientific um, caste almost, to emerge as rulers, to seize control of this purposeless process and enable humans to become more intelligent, more beautiful, longer lived, superior creatures. If it's left to chance, they'll just drift or become degenerate. And there is, a, there is in the early Wells, <clears throat> in fact in all of Wells, uh, a recurrent strain of, um, I think, of what can only be described as racism and also of anti-Semitism, which comes out from time to time. Um, but the basic idea is that um, uh, an elite will emerge, will be very scientifically minded, sometimes he identifies it with aviators, uh, that others even more improbably 
with bankers. Um, and he identified it with the, the Bolsheviks, went to see Lenin and later, later Stalin, and even at some kind of the, one of the lowest points of his prophetic gifts, he said he was looking for liberal Nazis to take up the, uh, take up the struggle. I think that was a sort of, uh, um, didn't de demonstrate deep judgment on his part. Um, but the idea that it would be this elite which would take over and would inject purpose in, into, um, into, into the process and would enable humans to, uh, to become, to, 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 to direct the course of their future evolution as governed by values of truthfulness and, and, and beauty and, and rigor and science and, and happiness and so on. Where these values came from, what were their, what were their um, authority, he never really resolved. Um, uh, he, he was in some ways a kind of Western God builder. There are, I don't quote them in the book actually, but there are explicit sort of sections in Wells where he says things like the God builder. So this, if you, what is God? God is the future of humanity. God has perfected humanity. Um, God isn't there to start with, but sort of emerges. In America, there was a tradition of evolutionary theology. I think there still is. In Europe, there were people like Teilhard Shada with slightly heretical Catholicism. Uh, who developed this idea. Wells had this idea. And in Wells, he was quite explicit that this involved, as he, as he put it, getting rid of inefficient groups. I mean, he said, if there are peoples, races, groups that are sort of inefficient, have no kind of place in this, or perversely backward in their outlook, then he said, well, the world's not a charitable. This is from his book, Anticipations, uh, well worth reading, although horrible at points. Um, he said they've got to be, their, their disappearance could be expedited, let's put it like that. And these, of course, were parts of the racist attitude, very common in the Edwardian period uh, throughout Europe, and which in Wells and others assumed, often assumed forms in which they were assimilated to a kind of deformed version of a theories of evolution. In Germany, there were scientists and writers like Heichel who propagated the idea of immutable races and also of a hierarchy of races. And there were similar people in, uh, in Europe, in, in Britain as well, who tried to, I think there's nothing much of this in Darwin at all, but they tried to uh, um, turn the idea of uh, inherent racial human inequalities into, um, into a scientific theory. Now, so Wells ha had this kind of view very, very strongly and went to Russia and um, talked to uh, Lenin, who he was very impressed by, was not reciprocated when he left the room. It's recorded that Lenin said, who is that ghastly little bourgeois? Um, <laughs> later on, he went to Stalin to try and get Stalin's cooperation with him, Wells, and Roosevelt, who he'd recently seen in Saving the World. Stalin doesn't seem to be interested in saving the world with H.G. Wells, but they did have a meeting. Um, but the point of Wells is, is that he had this commitment, but in his fictions, his scientific romances, are as if deliverances, intimations, intuitions from his unconscious mind, because if you think of his stories, the, the time traveler, the invisible man, the war of the worlds, and perhaps above all, the island of Dr. Moreau, which is a story of a vivisectionist performing hideous experiments on animals in order to turn them into humans, and they turn into kind of deformed, what he called beast folk, monsters. Uh, when you think about all of them, actually, what's happening is science is being used in there not to emancipate, not to ennoble, not to um, um, improve the human lot, but to continue the most nightmarish aspects of the human of human life. So that idea seems to have dogged Wells all along, and it's even more extraordinary that because what I, what I do in the, in the book is I quote 
some things that Dr. Moreau says and do, in, uh, in this fictional character, and they're word for word the same almost as the things that Wells had said a year or two before in his own mouth. Things like, well, if our ethics collide with the universe, we should change our ethics. If our ethics sort of regret the fact that some human groups become extinct, too bad for our ethics. They do, animals become extinct, so why don't we? In other words, he's trying to come up with something like a kind of um, an, even, uh, an evolutionary ethics, and if it involves mass killing and mass extermination, well, um, that's something he's willing to accept. And in fact, he says of Lenin, if Lenin kills, and he is killing already on a reasonably large scale, he said he always does it with a reason and with a scientific mentality. So that's, uh, that's quite all right for Wells. Therefore, for Lenin's kind of a scientific mind in, in that respect. So for, for Wells, faced this issue, the issue of Darwinism in a different way. He never had any time at all for psychic research or spiritualism or the idea that people survive bodily death. But what he did have the idea of was that um, humans could seize, a, or a small elite of humans, a small group, an intelligent minority of humans, of which for most of his life he believed, in which he belonged himself, of course, um, would seize, could seize control of, 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 of human evolution and um, uh, uh, um, make it purposeful. Now, of course, again, we, one can sort of ask questions about this. One can say, well, do members of this group have free will? I mean, is there, where does free will come from? It doesn't seem to come from science. It doesn't seem to come there's no mention of it in, the theory, in Darwin's theory of natural selection. Where does it come from? They sort of decide that they're not going to be governed, they're not going to be gene machines, they're not going to be, not going to be simply governed by these laws. They're going to um, um, have different, uh, uh, govern their conduct by different laws. How do they do that? Now, Wells had an experience himself which posed all these issues rather sharply, which is when he was first, uh, when he went to uh, Russia, the uh, first time he stayed with, uh, 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 um, after the revolution, he stayed with uh, um, the writer Maxim Gorky, and he had a, an encounter uh, in Gorky's apartment with Gorky's then secretary, uh, a woman, who he said they had a, a passionate uh, interaction, and he believed everything she ever said to her. To her. Later on, this woman became his life partner, Bura Budberg, a relative of the present deputy prime minister, by the way. Um, it's not made up, it's really true. Uh, just a great, great aunt. And uh, the, the reason this was kind of direct, it turned into a direct challenge to Wells is that uh, she told him, and this is where the story implicates the ideas directly, as I hope you'll see in a moment. She told him that she, when she came out of Russia, she couldn't go back because her life would be at risk, she'd be imprisoned and so on, for her involvement in particular with a British unofficial representative who'd been accused, I think probably correctly, of conspiring against the Bolshevik regime and trying to topple it and possibly even kill Lenin. He was sentenced to death in absentia by the, by the Bolsheviks. Uh, she'd had a relationship with that man. Um, she said she couldn't go back, but Wells discovered when he went to see Stalin that she'd been back regularly. Very baffled by this, he, uh, very uh, puzzled by it. And when he confronted her, she admitted that um, he had, she'd been impo uh, imposed on him by the, planted on him by the secret police, as she had been planted on Gorky before. And his response to that, as reported by his son, uh, Anthony West, who told him this, was to say, but aren't there some ethical principles? Aren't there some rules of conduct? Aren't there some ideas of right and wrong which a conscious individual must stick by at any, cons any, any price, even death? And according to uh, West, she replied with a laugh, aren't you a biologist, Wells? 
don't you know that the only law is the law of survival? And that sort of, I think, posed a problem. He says in, his, in the suppressed part of his autobiography that appeared after his death, some decades after he died, I cried for several nights. I wept for several nights. I, uh, um, I realized I would have to end my relationship with this woman. He never did, by the way. Um, it, I came back to her, asked her to marry him. She refused. She was very independent. Good for her. She said, well, at least live with me. No, I won't live with you. Well, again, in that case, give me my key back. I'm not giving you a key back. Um, and so that went on till the uh, end of his life. She was his partner. And, and she, as I think, destroyed his view. The son, Anthony West, says this explicitly of himself as a rational being as a conscious human individual, because he knew from that point onwards that he couldn't control his life. So if there was an intelligent minority, which he then realized, he concluded there wasn't, but if there had been, he wasn't a member of it. And he couldn't, so he came to doubt that uh, there ever was such a thing. And one of his last books, uh, The Mind at the End of His Tether, is a book of complete despair. But paradoxically, although she destroyed his belief in, so to speak, evolutionary humanism or um, uh, the rationale, potential rationality of the the evolutionary or the human process, she also, I think, gave him a serenity he'd never had earlier in his life because in his last, uh, his son comments on that, that he was a much more serene individual uh, as a result of her companionship. Um, and one of his later books, less well-known than The Mind of Its End, is called The Happy Turning. And in The Happy Turning, written not long before he died, he said, thus, he said, he turns from attempting to change the world to the contemplation of the, what he called the deathless finality of beauty, an interesting uh, title. So he, I think she gave him paradoxically two things. She destroyed his worldview um, unwittingly, but she also gave him a serenity which he never had before. But she posed a question which he never answered. Um, what was wrong with what was she, she was doing? Where did the values come from which said that one should never do what she... In fact, I mean, she said, I'm quite right about this, the consequences of her not playing along would have been terrible for her. Not an immediate execution, but increasing coercion, maybe ending up in a camp, starved or worked to death. And these were not fictitious because they happened to a great many people, women from her background, serial rape and so forth in the camps or in the prisons. Um, they happened to a great many uh, women from aristocratic or middle class or other backgrounds who happened to refuse or fell on the wrong sides of the authorities. That would have been her life or the end of her life. Um, and so she chose otherwise. She chose to go along with uh, the proposal uh, but she then moved to the West and was pretty well uh, more independent, though never, I think, completely independent um, from, from the, um, uh, the security services. How does this all add up then? Well, one, I'll try to press that and conclude now in the following. There are two main stories. The two main stories are of two different projects, completely different in many ways, but sharing a common element or a common core to use science to conquer or cheat death. In England, Victorian and Edwardian England, the attempt to show that death, in fact, doesn't exist. Or as, one of, as they put it, death is merely an episode in cosmical progress. You die, but you go on. Why is it important? Well, your possibilities are not cut off. They go on developing. You don't have incomplete lives. You don't have lives tragically or meaninglessly ended. They go on later. So development can go on. Whereas in Russia, where random death was commonplace on a scale unthinkable even in Victorian England with millions of people dying, corpses lying in the street of people who'd been killed for their boots or whatever, dead animals everywhere, that, those that weren't consumed for food in the, in the, in the, in the uh, as the aftermath of the First World War, then the Civil War, then the Bolshevik takeover and the continuation of the Civil War and the terror and so on. There doesn't seem to have been much 
belief there in continuity. In England, it, might, it, was, it was possible to think that when people died, at least for this Victorian and Edwardian elite and engaged in these speculations, that, as one of them said, it's like moving from the wing of one country house to another. And in the new wing, you find ghostly versions of the servants that served you in the other wing, and they are there forever, uh, eternal servants and so on. But in Russia, everything had been destroyed. So instead, they had a different idea, which was the conquest of death through, um, uh, uh, through cryonic suspension and later on ideas of extraterrestrial travel, ideas which have not died out, because I suppose one obvious was kind of thought on all this as well. And, and the, actually, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to contest this thought. One of the answers, well, they were all slightly batty and balmy, but we aren't. We are sort of almost afflicted with unbearable sobriety and, um, and sanity and uh, an excess of rationality. Well, um, I sort of wonder about that. Uh, there are people nowadays, Ray Kurzweil in the United States is one of them, who has um, uh, developed ideas of whereby we can escape our frail um, animal shells and achieve something like immortality in a virtual world where uploaded into cyberspace. And in cyberspace, we can have more than one body. We can have dozens of bodies. We can have two or even more genders. Um, we, can, we can do what we want in this, and we can be entirely free from and, and This is quite an influential idea in, in, many, in, in many contexts. So it's still alive. And of course, there's also chronic suspension. People who um, have themselves um, uh, uh, frozen or their brains frozen in these recessionary times um, uh, so that they can be brought back later uh, uh, when technology is improved and, 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 and resurrected. I met some back in the 80s and one of the questions I put to them which I never got an answer I said well let's just assume that you say it'll be how long they said well maybe a couple of hundred years the technology will have developed. I think they expect it earlier now but um, uh, uh, then we'll be brought back so I said well think about the last 200 years in the last 200 years there's been a terrible civil war in America been two world wars been the Vietnam War there have been economic catastrophes great depressions property rights have been scattered around all of the firms that existed practically speaking almost all back 200 years ago don't exist anymore do you really think that the firm which has got you tucked away somewhere in the, in, in, in the Mojave Desert, or I think some of them are actually in Beverly Hills, um, is that really going to be here 200 years from now? No power outages, no, no crooks, no dissolution of property rights. And they all said yes. So what this, um, what this led me to believe is that whatever technology can do, the, the flaw in technological projects of, tech, of, of immortality is that human institutions are unalterably mortal. Human institutions are consumed regularly by human conflicts. If you think of the, the, the uh, if you think if you were a 70 or 80 year old man, a woman living in let's say Central Europe now, how many regimes would you have lived under? Communism, fascism before that, democracy, various cases, three or four or five. It's actually very rare, as in Britain or America, that the regime has lasted two or three hundred years. It's actually, and even in America, um, uh, there was a catastrophic civil war in which much was destroyed. So essentially, I think that this whole, these whole two projects, which have kind of a very pointed and moving elements, are really uh, what they demonstrate. It's not the fault of science, of course, but it's science being used as a kind of channel for faith or even for magic, because what magic involves is circumventing the known laws of the world, or at least the known regularities that join us to our other animal kin, to which put us in the same position 
pretty well, although we're more powerful and more clever, and we imagine that we're more self-aware uh, um, uh, than other animals in our evolutionary kin. And the reason I speculate why is that, unlike our evolutionary kin, we do have a, an obscure but nonetheless pervasive sense of our mortality. I believe the experiments have been done with chimpanzees, in other words, whereby they can be taught a concept of death. But what we seem from observing other creatures is they're certainly not permeated by the sense of their own mortality the way we are. That is a genuine difference between us and our evolutionary kin, a real difference. Um, but in other respects, if you uh, accept the scientific message, I think what it shows is that we're in the same position. So that though we can maybe handle it more or less intelligently, the idea that the human species can bootstrap itself into some position of controlling its evolution, that I think is, a, is, is, is a, actually a, a harmful myth. It's harmful because what it invariably always does mean is that some human beings gain power over other human beings and make them do things that they may or may not want to do. I mean, the human species is not a, any more a collective entity any more than tigers are. We don't imagine tigers or gorillas, as it were, somehow getting together to decide uh, the devolution of gorillas. There are agencies of transnational cooperation, of course, um, but they're not going to do what Wells thought, I don't think, is any part of, of evolving into a world state or even what he sometimes called a world brain. I think that's just a complete fantasy. So my conclusion is, it's, it's as it were, I mean, I, I'm not trying to promote any, 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 any worldview or belief system. To any, I'm not trying to convert any of you to anything. I'm not a secular missionary, a la Dawkins. Um, what I'm, or, a, or a religious missionary, I don't belong to any religion. I don't practice any or subscribe to any. And in general, I try to avoid belief um, <laughs> as far as I possibly can. But what I'm doing is telling these stories, which to some extent are they're based in fact. There are 30-odd pages of um, references if you want to follow any of those up, um, with the aim, first of all, of showing how these ideas were deeply embedded in the lives of many people and played out in their lives. Um, and secondly, really of making a suggestion, just a suggestion, no more than that, which you might or might not want to think about, which is that um, science isn't ever untouched by the vagaries of faith or hope or magic. It, it becomes a channel for them, just as religion has become a channel for various uh, sometimes dark uh, human impulses. And that's because science, like religion, uh, is a creation of the uh, frail human animal. Thank you very much. Right, thank you, John. We've got uh, plenty of time for questions. We're going to take them in uh, groups of two or three. Um, at some point, I'm going to just uh, ask a question myself because I want to. Uh, but for the moment, I'm going to give it to you guys first. So, yes, hold your hands up. Um, we'll, we'll go one, two. Is there a third hand up? Three. Okay, so first the guy there, and then here. Um. I'm curious what you make of the uh, protests in the Middle East at the moment. Mm. Um, what's interesting about them is that uh, it seems to be as a result of the, the internet. Um, mm. These people have, have essentially started to argue for democratic rights. And these are explicitly Western values. It, it almost seems as if when the option is open for, for them, they automatically end up aiming for these values that are supposedly simply uh, sort of imperialist or simply regional. Uh, what do you feel the implications of such 
Thank you. And then here, yeah. I wondered if you'd read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. I have, yeah. And uh, can you please comment well, on that? Yeah. Okay. Well, do you want to tell you, I have read, but do you want to tell the audience what said um, It's a, well, there was a woman who died of cervical cancer yeah. in 1951, and um, her cells, which were removed from her tumour, are still propagating today. They're immortal. Yeah. And um, the book is, is all about tracing her family and, Thank you, and yeah. what they think about yeah. the... Um, it's a good question. Thing. Thanks very much. Come one here, yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering what, what you have to say about the, uh, the Nazis who used uh, uh, organs from, uh, from the Jews whom they, um, mm -hmm. yeah, as part of the concentration camp uh, routine or agenda. Uh, I mean, in, in other words, that was a specific um, sort of a goal in cheating death, using, using Jew, Jewish organs mm -hmm. to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to extend the life of non-Jews. Okay, shall I answer yep, those three? Good. I'll start at the end and work backwards. The Nazis, very interesting question. Um, I'm glad you asked it. Uh, one of the things which I think is important to realize about the Nazis is that they did assimilate their racist and genocidal project to science. Yes. Very important. They, weren't, yes. they didn't just see themselves as irrational bigots. They assimilated, and indeed, um, which they also were, of course. Uh, but uh, some of them, as as has recently been shown, had been um, taught by people who had been involved in genocides in Africa of the Herero peoples. Have you ever heard of him, any of them? They were in what was then German Africa. They were taken into camps. Uh, the majority perished, and some perished in terrible experiments. And some of the, the German physicians who were involved in that went back, went, got positions in German universities, and taught the people who then implemented these. Uh, hideous experiments involving Jews and um, I think what's important there, a figure which it's disputed I should tell you but I'm, um, uh, how the, I think a figure in the a figure, uh, a German thing, Heichel, the evolutionary, I mentioned earlier Ernst Heichel, is a kind of evolutionary biologist, was an important figure in uh, promoting the idea of immutable racial groups and of some of them, for example Jews being inferior to others and so, I, see, I tend to think myself that, and putting the Nazis on one side, I tend to think that um, uh, it's, 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 I don't say it's inevitable, but I think the idea of using biological research to promote something as unachievable as immortality, or even perhaps as great longevity, does, you know, there's always a risk of some kind built into that. And a, an interesting thing, which is currently um, uh, an interesting book, which of science fiction, but science fiction set in the past, which explores this, is Never Let Me Go, and the movie. Because what it concerns there is a, is a science fiction world based on the idea that sometime in the 40s or the 50s, technologies were developed in Britain which could enable people to live indefinitely, not Im immortal, but live much, much longer than they otherwise would. Uh, these were discovered, but they required a, a healthy supply of human organs, and that in the, in the book, uh, these are provided by, by children being farmed in dingy public school-like country uh, houses, uh, not told, except by accident, of what their fate would be, but in having short lives ahead of them. And then they would, be, they would have their, what they call their donations, which would end their lives at some point. And the story is really about, by Ishiguru, is about what happens to one of the kids who fall in love and want what they want, they want to live longer. Uh, they want what they call a deferral. And so they finally ask for a return. I won't spoil the 
I, I won't spoil the, uh, the, the by, by telling, but I think it's a, it's a very important book. But I don't say that the use of science always have that role because obviously, we, in this among us here, um, we're all we're all probably most of us. Uh, um, we know that humans in affluent societies now, on, on average, live longer than they did before, and we are continuing to live longer. And to the extent that that's healthy life, we must all welcome it. I think I certainly would. Um, but uh, um, uh, I think in this respect, it's important to realize that uh, some of the worst um, atrocities, including the worst of all, um, the Holocaust in, in the 20th century, were associated with claims which of course were pseudoscience because the science wasn't credible science but it was very important at the time that there were claimed to be science and if you want if you want to read about this by someone who's sort of actually around at the time he's a very mixed figure in many ways but there's a rather fascinating book by Arthur Kersler called Arrival and Departure now he knew some of the leading Nazis he actually knew them personally and in there what they say is what I believe many of them said they said we are the real scientific revolutionaries not the Bolsheviks because we are going to use science, meaning <laughs> sterilization, killing off of, uh, of, 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 of certain groups, to create a higher species, not, of course, for everybody, apart from the ones who have been enslaved or, or died. There will only be a few who are really supermen. It's always male, by the way. Um, but um, uh, uh, if you want to read about it, read that book, because that will give you a different picture of Nazism from the one you get. It's even more horrible, in my view actually than the one which but it's one which is based in his own actual conversations and life just so, a note to that yeah. John, uh, John the, um, although claimed to be science mm. seems to me absolutely right mm. uh, it's often said that um, Hitler shared with the Bolsheviks a, a sort of substantive, substantial atheism mm. and that these two movements in the 20th century were mm. atheist movements but uh, from, from what I've read uh, None of this, in, just as in, in the case of many of the Victorian mm. Brits that you were talking about, in the, in the case of the mm. National Socialists, none of this science was thought to be incompatible with a basic sense of a religious conception of history and uh, of a, a kind of providential movement that this all belonged to. Well, of course, Nazism wasn't, I mean, it was a, a, mi a mix of mad and bad ideas, so mm. there wasn't anything sort of coherent in it. But some of the Nazis were Nietzscheans, or th accepted a, a vulgarized version of Nietzsche, according to which history had been chaotic up to now, but a, a kind of a, a super elite could emerge and, and, and create a kind of order in it. So for them, there would be nothing providential. Mm -hmm. Others did have secular versions of providential. Maybe I should go on to the next two questions. Yeah. On Henrietta Lack, that's um, uh, a very interesting book. I'm glad you mentioned it. Uh, and, um, but you see, it raises an issue. It's not Henrietta Lack who's immortal. It's a tissue. And uh, one of the puzzles of these kind of projects of immortality is what it is that is immortalized. I mean, supposing it becomes possible for some sliver of my conscious mind to be uploaded into a computer. Of course, at some post-WikiLeaks episode, I might be deleted suddenly. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's not clear that I have immortality. But, uh, uh, but even if I'm there, some kind of shadow, is it me, the human being I've been? Is it, or is it some data set that's been extracted from me? And even if you imagine religious, uh, more explicitly religious or spiritualistic ideas in which I have a new body, an etheric body, better than my own has been, and kind of younger, no doubt, by the time I get into the afterlife, um, in what sense is it actually myself? And uh, Sidgwick actually explored some of these ideas, Henry Sidgwick. I mean, he said, uh, even, in, even in our own life, he said, well, if, if our future selves are very different from our present selves, why should we care about them? 
And actually this is a problem, I think, for him, because it's not clear why if some shadow of myself exists in an afterlife, that solves anything. Not clear why that gives a basis to ethics. He thought that ethics sort of would collapse completely without the postulate of immortality, as he called it. But there are lots of ethical systems we don't rest on it. For example, in Buddhism, as I understand it, immortality is not even desirable. I mean, you might even see Buddhism as sort of the pursuit of mortality. You don't want to. And they are ethics of compassion, not based on immortality. Early Greek, Greek um, ethics wasn't based on any idea of... But it might be the case, and here he might have been right, that uh, um, uh, the type of ethics in which he believed in as a kind of post-Christian an ethics of duty, of categorical duty applied to all human beings which involved renunciation of self. Maybe that required some sort of belief in, I mean, or grounding of the kind he, he imagined. So, the, so my response to that is, it's not Henrietta Lack who is immortal, but a part of her. And that's a problem with all of these immortalist projects. I even think of the projects of immortality as being sort of, although I, I argue it in the book, I can't argue it here, as being in some sense anti-human. Because what they involve is the world extinction, the engineered extinction of humans as they've been. Because we all do turn into blurs of light, flitting about, as it were. And supposing we then do, as many of these thinkers thought, we merge into a universal. Kurzweil repeats this, by the way. He says that consciousness will all merge into a universal consciousness. And then he says the universe will become um, uh, fully conscious. We all, it's not, not a, I have no desire to be merged in that way myself. But uh, uh, in what sense is it me or you? I might be immortal, but only in, in some kind, like Henrietta Lack is. Mm -hmm. She's gone. Uh, um, Egypt. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sort of skeptical about the idea. I don't deny that the internet had played a role. But look, the Shah was toppled without the internet. Um, uh, the uh, French Revolution occurred without benefit of mass revolution. The Bolshevik Revolution occurred. There have been plenty of revolutions in history without that. Without it. it may make it easier in some sense, but my own view is it probably won't for the following reason. I'm sort of old enough to remember when people said photocopiers would end tyranny. <laughs> Sounds funny now, but uh, 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 then later on it, it was video cameras. Video cameras. You could say, surely a camera which shows these atrocious events actually being out of the question. Well, it hasn't happened. And similarly with the internet, for one thing, I mean the internet can be closed down, that was closed down for a while. And also, as with all technologies, you know, there's an awful lot of terrible stuff on the internet. After all, there's a lot of racism and nonsense and poison on, on the internet. All technologies have this uh, ambiguous character. They can all be used for different purposes. So although I don't deny that it has, for example, it, through the internet, communities of people who wouldn't otherwise become the communities they became, who, for example, have rare diseases, uh, you know, they can talk to each other about their therapies and so on. There are only half a dozen in each country. They would probably never have gotten together otherwise and so on. It can be very beneficial in that way, nonconformists in different countries. But on the other hand, um, uh, the Internet can be an agency of disinformation. And also cyberspace, let's not forget this, cyberspace is already a territory, a site of war. Cyberspace is already being used to uh, intervene in... Um, uh, scientific facilities, nuclear facilities, it can be intervened to, cha to, to scramble uh, programs which control airports, the distribution of water and of electricity. So that, I mean, the next dimension of war has already begun. 
the next dimension of war is the use of cyberspace as a, as a site of active warfare. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I don't sort of share the Kurzweil view, which is a kind of high-tech internet age version of the spiritual summerland that sort of once you get up there, if you want you can get up into cyberspace there, you go, phew, I'm sort of out of all that. No, what you'll find is you'll be dragged back down, apart from the sort of fact, which is almost kind of metaphysical truth, I take it, that this cyberspace does seem to depend, as far as I can understand it, on a, on a material substratum. If all the computers vanished or rusted or were switched off, I know it's difficult to switch them off because actually the origin of the internet is military, as, as most of us know. It, it actually was created in a way it was hard to close down as part of the Cold War. But if somehow those dis they could all be disabled, there'd be no cyberspace and everything in it would vanish and you'd simply be left with a desolate earth. So I don't kind of, um, uh, I don't deny that in these episodes that have been going on, it's had a role. Um, but I think that revolutionary movements have in the past and will in the future perhaps even uh, occur um, without the benefit of, of the internet or Twitter or any of these things, because they did in the past. Uh, even with threats of being shot or tortured or, or whatever, there have been successful revolutions throughout human history. Okay, let's, uh, let's take another three, two or three. Uh, there's one at the front here, and then one, yeah, you right at the back, mm. and then one in the middle at the back. Um, attempts to uh, cheat death mm. with modern genomics mm. tend to be prohibited in most uh, mm. research protocols. Yes. So cloning, human cloning. So maybe uh, that could have helped in the Victorian times. <laughs> but yeah. one thing they could do, <clears throat> which is not cloning, is reverse engineering cells mm -hmm. into pluripotent. Do you think that might have, no, would, would that appeal to some of these very interesting. latter day Victorians? Thank you, very walking? interesting. Thank you. And yes, the, that's it. She's got you. Yeah. And then right in the middle. Hi. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts on euthanasia were and whether you think that attitudes towards it in Europe will mm. have to change in the coming years. Mm. Right. In the middle, it was, I don't know where. Yeah, good. Uh, I was wondering um, what, how the concept of reincarnation mm. would work with immortalization, because it's quite popular in a lot of Eastern mm. mythology and spiritualism, but how it would work or even how Victorians would react to something like that. Thank you. Very good questions. Terribly good. All of them. Uh, I'll start with the first this time about human cloning. And I should mention something which is one of the strangest stories in the book, but it is true that there was an experiment which is relevant to this. There was an experiment which some of these psycho researchers believe themselves to be part of, in which it was imagined that deceased scientists, <coughs> including some named Cambridge scientists who'd gone on to the other world, were implementing eugenics to design. Um, uh, an extraordinary human being who would be born and bring peace and order to the world. And they actually believed this um, uh, for a while. And um, I think it's interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, it was eugenics that they were using. It was a science or alleged science or something which had some scientific elements in it. And it was also, as eugenics was, was a progressive belief system. Because what eugenics was supposed to do was gradually improve the human stock. And this is where it became decidedly sinister at some points, getting rid of uh, uh, in one way or another, getting rid of uh, inferior elements of the human stock. And a number of leading eugenicists, uh, Lombroso, who was a kind of genetic criminologist, were very interested in psycho-research and spiritualism, wrote books on it, in fact. Um, but the idea was that this would occur in the afterlife. 
And uh, in fact, a child was born, not, I think, by uh, eugenic scientific posthumous inception, but by uh, the uh, illegitimate related, the secret relationship of um, the, the automatist and uh, the brother of Arthur Balfour, conservative politician who'd given up politics to devote his life to, um, uh, to the study of the paranormal. And by sheer chance, I recently met someone who told me I, 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 I met the Messiah, John, without realizing it. Um, he'd met the person himself who was a, a young man who grew up. Uh, it doesn't, not clear how much he knew, perhaps never always. He went to Cambridge, studied with Wittgenstein, or met Wittgenstein anyway, studied with C.D. Broad, a famous philosopher of the period, went into the war, joined the Secret Intelligence Service, worked with Kim Philby, left late after the war at some time, and suddenly converted to Catholicism and became a monk, taught at Downside. Had, in other words, an interesting life, but he didn't bring peace and order to the, the universe. Uh, so it didn't come any, anywhere near it. But my point is that, um, uh, your point is, uh, well, there are protocols against, against many of these forms of, of research and so on in real world. Yes, there are. Um, but your question, I mean, first of all, I wouldn't really be confident that in times of intense international conflict that they would be adhered to. If you can imagine war or something close to war between major powers, I think they'd cheat. After all, they cheated. I mean, the reason that there are as many nuclear powers in the world now is that they've all cheated. They've, they've done it uh, sub rosa. I think all of the spread after the initial um, development of the nuclear weapon um, uh, uh, in the Second World War was, was illicit, so I imagine that that would, would happen later. Or they would get rounded by other means, as you say. They might not do what is forbidden, but they might try other, other techniques like reverse, reverse cloning and, and, and so on. I should say in advance of all this, I, I mean, in my position, I, I'm not a scientist, and I don't attempt to say what is ever going to be scientifically or technologically possible. I, do, I don't know. I don't think the limits can be prescribed in advance. I limit my comments to what is humanly plausible in terms of how these will be used. And um, uh, going on human history thus far, the answer can only be in very mixed ways. That's all one can, all one can really say with any confidence. Euthanasia, well, I support, I mean, I'm a supporter of voluntary euthanasia. Um, I think it's in a society devoted to personal choice. It's interesting that this choice over the most fundamental aspect of our lives is not facilitated or empowered. But I'm not. I mean, I'm not a supporter of euthanasia as part of a, a collective policy. Um, uh, that's to say, I'm not, uh, I can easily imagine a situation in which uh, I wouldn't want it to become part of the big society, if I can put it like that. Um, uh, I, I can easily imagine a situation in which, in which other reasons, like resource scarcity, you know, we've got a shortage of bedpans, and it might be, uh, might be better if we had fewer patients. Um, I can easily imagine, I think, so you've got to build in um, very, very strong um, uh, legal mechanisms for the protection of, uh, of frail uh, people. That's absolutely essential. But if that can be done, it can, of course, extend choice, not only choice life. Because I think, as was pointed out by one of the people who got the law changed, a woman who is suffering from a degenerative, she'll probably, if the law is changed, she can probably, she'll probably be alive and happy longer. Because she doesn't have to end it while she still can. She can leave it till later when someone she trusts can, can help her. Whereas if you believe you're not getting any help, then you'll do it earlier. 
when you still can. So I see that actually as a pro-life view myself, and I support it on those, but I am fully conscious of the dangers. The dangers are real. I don't believe there's an inexorable slippery slope to the Nazis. I mean, the Nazi program started as a coercive program. It started by t targeting powerless groups. Um, uh, I don't think that's true, I, th I think there are, but I, I, I think it is very important not to just rely on people to um, not to exploit each other because we know that powerless people tend to get um, uh, used and exploited and even disposed of if they have no uh, if they have no um, if they have no legal uh, uh, defences. Reincarnation. Oh, reincarnation, very important. Yes. Um, well, the reincarnation, as I understand it, and I did study these a bit, it comes in various forms. I mean, in some kinds of Buddhism, it's not the idea of a reincarnation of a soul, because most forms of Buddhism don't have the idea of a, of a continuing soul. It's just that various um, tendencies, uh, chains of thoughts, which are embodied in me as I am now, get transmitted perhaps to a, to a subsequent life. And that's a very widespread uh, uh, belief system. But as I mentioned when I'm talking about Buddhism, in a, in, you might say it's a form of immortality, but of course the goal at least of some Buddhists um, yeah, and of s uh, others, uh, because the, the belief in incarnation wasn't restricted to what we now think of as the East. Uh, it was quite common in the ancient world. It's quite common in the ancient Greek and Roman world, for example. Uh, but the goal, the goal was often seen as escaping incarnation and reincarnation. That, that one would not be born again was the goal. And that one, so in other words, if there was immortality in these theories, it was not personal immortality. It was immortality as part of some larger spiritual entity which one accessed and became part of by not being born again. And that required overcoming egoism in one's own life. And from that point of view, the desire for personal immortality would be the supreme form of egoism. You want to go on forever. I don't actually think it often is because I actually think the torment of death and bereavement is often not so much, or hardly, or hardly at all, that the person thinks they themselves will subsequently die. What they can't reconcile themselves to is the fact that the loved one has died, not that they're going to die. So it's actually an altruistic response. But I think that's a relevant, by the way, there is a version that's in the book, uh, a, a kind of esoteric version, if you like, of the theory of uh, reincarnation, which was explored by some of the occultists, which is, the, which is a version of it in which rather than being born in a different life, we're born in exactly the same place as the person we were before, when we died, in exactly the same time. We live through the life exactly, in exactly the same way. But by the acquisition of certain, by some spiritual exercises, we can actually remember our previous recurrences and therefore alter what yet is to come. Uh, it's a sort of, it's an idea which Nietzsche had a version of I don't think it's fully logically coherent but it, and it does lead to some kind of slightly paradoxical results one mentioned in the book I rather like this is one of the practitioners of this view and he propagated for all of his life towards the end of his life I think he knew he was dying at the time um, practiced exercise designed so that you could if you see the idea remember the future of his life in other words he's not yet dead but his last recurrence he's trying to remember the, the years and so on and that were in his last but have yet to happen to him. And he practiced these kind of intensely with some results, but towards the very end of his life, he was on the roof of a house which had been given to him by a wealthy patron. And it was over in, in Virginia Waters, I think, it was overlooking London, and it happened to be in September 1940. And as he looked over there, London was a gigantic bonfire. 
and he looked at it meditatively for a long time as if performing supreme inner efforts and then turned to the disciple and said um, you know however much I try I can't remember this <laughs> so I think it's a, a rather sort of poignant uh, story that the, even these esoteric forms of reincarnation actually don't really capture what, what our situation as humans which is that things happen to us for which there's no precedent, even though many features of history are, are repetitive and recur again and again. What happens to us is really has no precedent in our lives, so we just have to cope with them. Okay, we've got time for another round. Uh, there's uh, one down here. Any more? Yes. Sorry? Yes. Oh, you, oh you, you've asked one already. But you, have another, you might have another. Let's give other people a chance first if they haven't. Uh, well, we'll take the one and then we'll see. I wonder whether, in a way, that the strange project of cheating death that you talked about so eloquently is really part of a broader project of cheating uncertainty. Hmm. Um, the fact that we can't really accept the random rather than progressive effects of, muta of mutation and evolution, hmm. uh, and that the, the idea that uncertainty um, rather than necessary progress is caused even by human innovation, hmm. mutation of the human imagination. Okay. Any more? Yes, one here. Thank you. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not an expert personally, so I hope I could just ask the question generally about where you see the branch of philosophy of science fitting into this and uh, you know, Thomas Kuhn paradigms and various models of science that people may or may not even be aware that they are drawing on them. How can our awareness of those help us to come to terms with death and immortality and mm. issues like that? Mm. Right, and I'm going to ask one. Um, <coughs> uh, the, the lines um, that you follow are, are, are concerned with responses to loss and the finality of, uh, of the absolute loss of the death of, one's, of oneself and other, others perhaps one loves. And um, that theme seems to me to belong to a, a wider task, as it were, that we often feel of coming to terms with awful things that happen in general. And um, it seems to me that there are two, historically, two very clear kinds of response. One is this immortalization idea, or a reincarnation idea of some kind, so that the, 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 the terrible loss, as it were, isn't such a loss. It is so final. It isn't so final. Uh, or, alternatively, if, uh, some coming to terms with the acceptance of its awful finality but seeing it as part of some greater story, which could be God's plan, for example, and uh, you'd yes. have some providential story. And uh, I think that it seems clear that in a time after Darwin, it's very hard to hold on to the providential idea, and so perhaps m one might be more inclined to go towards the immortalization response, unless you're a Marxist. Because there you still have a pro nice providential story to tell, although mm. it's one in which um, we could control our own destiny rather than it being God's plan for man. And so the, the story that you tell about the Bolsheviks, it seems to me that those who go in for some kind of um, technological resurrection or uh, scientific defeat of death, that would be a rather marginal group for them. That the dominant politically it was, and, and they don't really need it because they have this other, more general response, which is a scientific understanding of history. So rather than a scientific understanding of death, there's a scientific understanding of history. That would be my question. Okay, so there are three good, very good, very deep questions there. Uh, 
the first one, um, is it not death which is being challenged, but uncertainty? I think there's a lot in that. In fact, in the book I speculate that what's really being challenged is contingency. Contingency means that things happen to us that can't be deduced from a single principle and that we can't control. It happens all the time. And if you sort of hold to some idea that humans should be author of their lives, authors of their lives, or that they should uh, uh, be what H.G. Wells described as uh, conscious human individuals, which up till his encounter in Russia he thought he was himself, then contingency things as, uh, are continually thwarting uh, what, uh, changes in the world, changes in, and, and death is significant there just because it's one which does involve irreparable loss. You've, your, your human attachments, your deepest feelings, maybe your plans in life are based on uh, the continuing, the enduring existence of another human being, shall we say, uh, or even in your own continuing human, and then suddenly something happens, which can range from an, an illness or an accident or an uh, act of violence or persecution or, uh, or a huge war or, or whatever, uh, or even just a flu, a large flu which kills lots of people. See, and that seems to sort of disrupt the making of meaning. It seems to disrupt the sense of meaning that people not only seems to, but really does disrupt <laughs> meaning in, in, in human lives. And so, as was later, you know, what responses of people had to that? Well, the commonest throughout history, not only in monotheism, but even outside and before monotheism, has been to see these contingent events as somehow part of a larger story, as being meaningful, even though they don't seem meaningful. So although if you look at the actual events, a brick falls on you or someone from a, from a building and no one threw it, it just fell from a, or from a, from a roof or something, uh, that seems uh, an unmistakable case of sheer random. But if you subscribe to some uh, uh, providentialist or, uh, or other religious narrative, it would have a meaning. And the, the only question would be to, uh, you might, that meaning might never be clear to you and you might die without knowing it. Uh, it might, there might be a veil between you and what the meaning was, but you'd be assured that there was such a meaning. So that would make it easier to tolerate the finality of the, the, the finality of the loss. Would not be sort of, even if you didn't believe in life after death, it would be still lost for a purpose. It would be the meaning wouldn't be finally destroyed. And I mean, I think one of the things one could say is there are other. I mean, psychotherapists, including uh, one I know well. Um, uh, Adam Phillips has written wonderfully on this in his book, uh, Darwin's Worms. It's about Darwin's love of worms, among other things, and how Darwin took inspiration from worms. And what uh, Phillips argues is that really um, the denial of the finality of death is really connected with uh, the, the uh, unwillingness we all have, which sometimes amounts to refusal to mourn, but that if we were able to mourn, we would be able to go through mourning and emerge from it and carry on with a creative life. So in other words, it's a kind of alternative to mourning. You don't have to go through the mourning, at least at its deepest levels, at the most painful and agonizing levels, if nothing has been lost. And even if the person's not there or uh, the beloved companion is not there, there's some sort of meaning to it. And I think that speaks very, very deeply. And I think myself that these scientific projects you see show this need for meaning. I mean, science, I don't think, can meet the need for meaning. I mean, I, uh, this is where we get onto the question of philosophies of science. Whatever, whether you're a Kuhnian or a Popperian or a Fyorobendian or a, whatever you might be, I mean, I, I don't think science can 
uh, uh, demonstrate a, a pattern, a structure of values in the world or the universe, or, but it's used, it has been frequently used uh, uh, by these uh, uh, thinkers I discuss and others to um, enable the absence of meaning to be uh, um, resisted. So what looks like the absence of meaning, if somebody, if a slate falls on someone, they're killed, they're lost, lost forever, that's unbearable, that's meaningless. So if you then think that by using techniques of science you can show that human survive bodily death, including the, bodily, the person you've lost, then you escape, you escape the, the finality and you escape the need to mourn, and meaning is preserved. So I think this is a very powerful, uh, science has become a kind of channel for meaning. Now in that respect, Simon's uh, questions about uh, providentialism and Marxism, not only Marxism, I mean I am a critic of Marxism, but not only Marxists who think of human uh, history as a potentially a science in which there are a series of successive stages at the end of which uh, all human societies converge on a single model. I mean Marx thought that. If you'd said to Marx, could there be a world forever in which some societies remained feudal and others capitalist and one or two socialist and others collapsed altogether. I don't think he would. He, he allowed that there could be what he called barbarism, which was a sort of retreat into. So he wasn't a determinist, actually. Uh, but he never imagined that the, as it were, the inherent processes of history could reach a conclusion without convergence on a single model of society. And he never imagined that that convergence would include continuing things like war or oppression or destructive social conflict. All of those features of human history would, were part of what he called prehistory. But he's not the only person who thought that because lots of neoliberals and free marketeers nowadays thought exactly the same. I mean, this was, this was the theory, if there was a theory, it was theory behind various types of intervention and regime change. That is, if you sweep away a tyranny, something that no one doubts is a tyranny, you sweep away the despotism, and then what emerges from it are the, the forces for uh, uh, democracy and progress and, uh, uh, and for the neoliberal capitalism will just sort of emerge of their own uh, volition. And the, the global convergence, not on communism, but on um, a global free market, will then be accelerated or expedited. So lots of people think that. And in fact, in the modern period, uh, pretty well all, um, or most, modern social theorists have had some ideas of this kind. August Comte thought that the whole world was converging on a version of technocracy or hierarchical industrialism. Technocracy, thought the whole world. Um, uh, Herbert Spencer uh, thought that the whole world was converging on what he called industrialism, by which he meant uh, laissez-faire capitalism. Marx thought it was communism. Mill thought it was a complex form of liberal social democracy. It wasn't an inevitable convergence. Things could disrupt it. But if the normal processes of history continued, there would be convergence. That was what they more or less thought. And the only thing one can say about all these theories is that they were completely different and all false. None of these processes have actually happened. And that tells you something, I think, about, I mean, the providentialist view of history should remain a religious myth. Uh, when it becomes a secular myth, it becomes decidedly uh, misleading it seems to me because at least in the best forms of the myth it's, it's taken that we can't know actually what the plan is or the underlying that's that what reconciles us to terrible wars and terrible conflicts which we have to fight like in the second world war which we have to fight and so on reconciles it to us because there is something in what otherwise would look like a chaotic 
process of, uh, of, of, of drift. John? So I guess, I guess, I guess the, the purpose of your, I mean, I'm just responding, purpose, I, I, my only point is, it's not just Marxists. I think it's a, it's a very strong tendency in, in, in modern thought, which is that things, I mean, even, it even applies in the Lilliputian world of British politics, which is that uh, everything ends up with what's called modernization. <laughs> which usually means um, whatever politicians want to do at the time. But there is actually a theory behind it, which the recent theory is that modernization and marketization are the same. Uh, and that, I think, is held, was held by uh, a version by Thatcher, uh, later by uh, Blair, and now by the president. It's, it's kind of deeply rooted. And if you sort of kept it, well, you know, if, if there is something called modernization, it can have many forms. It can be terrible. It can be anti-market. It can be... They say, no, no, real modernization, real modernization has always one meaning, us. We are modernity. And, and that goes on until they are politically unsuccessful. Well, uh, we've, um, we've hit another kind of finality, which is the clock. Um, and uh, John is going to be available for signing the Immortalization Commission outside and uh, um, draw your attention to one of the adverts for the book which remind us that the implications of the book will haunt the reader for the rest of their lives and perhaps beyond. <laughs> but for now, we should uh, show our gratitude in the ordinary way. <laughs>